Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So Biden decided to open up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. OPEC is going to cut production by 2 million barrels a day. And Biden's response is, take the oil that we have in the United States that we utilize in emergency situations and bring it down to levels we have not seen in decades. Endanger the United States so you can make claim that you are doing something good for the economy, doing something doing good or doing something good for the American people. Go on and make that claim. The fact that you are doing no good Well, that's secondary to the primary, but that is you pretend to do good. And we should really start digging into over the course of the next days and weeks. Here was President Biden, who was heading out to Saudi Arabia. And there was big questions about whether or not he should go have uh, this conversation. But he was he's he's making us better all around the world. He's bringing America back. We're respected again. And here is Saudi Arabia and therefore the OPEC nation saying, no, we're not going to produce anymore. We're actually going to produce less. And of course, this benefits Russia in an incredible way. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Guys, so good to be with you. Find everything, TonyKatz.Locals.com. TonyKatz.Locals.com. And, and look, lots of people are, are, are picking this up. It was, you know, I, I quote uh, Jim Garrity often. I, I like his writing quite a bit over there at National Review. OPEC gives Biden U.S. consumers the middle finger. That's correct, but it's not the U.S. consumer. It's Biden. It's giving Biden the middle finger. Focus it where it is. It's Biden is weak. We don't have to worry about him. And uh, we're going to push him around. Because it helps us on the other side. And of course, we got to get into exactly how uh, this this helps. How this helps. But this was, uh, was, was, was this MSNBC? Or was this CNN as well? I don't remember. No, no, I'm sorry, this was Fox Business. This was Fox Business talking about what the release of this 10 million barrels means in relationship to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. OPEC and Russia, in a rebuke to President Biden, cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day. Russia is now using energy cuts against Europe over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Oil is now marching toward $100 a barrel. Edward Lawrence in Washington with more. Edward. Well, is President Joe Biden disappointed by the decision by OPEC Plus to cut production? The president saying that the last of the release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve will happen in November. He will then consider more releases in the future, even though the reserve is at the lowest level in 37 years. We use far more oil than we can keep up with with the petroleum reserve. The reserve is for emergencies. Are we in an emergency or are we in a moment with policy that doesn't match the moment? Dr. Matt Will joins us right now, economist at the University of Indianapolis, who has been reviewing this latest from OPEC. When we last spoke, sir, because I'm going to ask you to defend something you said. When we last spoke, you said that Russia was, uh, you know, hit by the initial sanctions, but now is selling all of its oil. It's got its oil going to China. It's got its oil going to India. And both those places are wrong to buy oil from Russia. But what that did was free up the other oil all over the world. And that's why we saw gas prices going down. But we've seen gas prices inching back up. So what has changed and what does this decision from OPEC mean for us going forward? 
What has changed, Tony, is starting last week at September 26th, rumors began that OPEC was going to cut production. And as soon as that rumor hit the market, prices started going up, and they've been going up, and they've been going up. And then the rumor turned to be fact yesterday, Tony. A fact. Let me tell you the fact. I know people don't like numbers, but I got to tell them this. Demand next year is projected to go up two and a half million barrels a day. OPEC is going to cut production two million barrels per day. Tony, that's like a four and a half million dollar or million barrel gap. Four and a half million barrels per day gap that is went into the data in the market in the last week. That is why prices are going up, Tony. And that's not just because of OPEC, and it's not just because of Russia. It's also because of us and that we are cutting production, too. And that's a problem. When you talk about the United States cutting production, uh, I think the question people would ask is, well, wait, what are we actually producing? We, we have an administration that isn't a, a believer. They, they are believers in the green economy, not in the actual economy. So what is it that we're cutting, and how is that being done? Well, Tony, okay, again, more numbers. When Trump took office, we were producing 9 million barrels a day. When the pandemic hit, we were producing 13 million. Right now, last week, we were producing 12 million barrels per day. That's down. That's an 8% down from where we were pre-pandemic. We could get into why, but it's almost entirely because of policies from the Biden administration. Tony, he's had laws, rules put in place that have reduced production and reduced the ability to expand for the next two to five years. Those are policies that cause this reduction. So it's a hypocritical for the president to point the finger at OPEC when he is cutting production in the United States. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis. You can find him on Twitter, Dr. Matt Will, W-I-L-L, Dr. Matt Will, on, on the Twitter box. So we have policy that creates less for the United States. We have OPEC engaging in creating less. Uh, one would ask if, if the desire is there, is the cut somehow uh, really all associated with bringing up the price for, for a, a larger profit margin, or is it geopolitical? What, what is your analysis? Tell us. Oh, Tony, it's both. There's definitely geopolitical going on here. There's definitely Russia and OPEC. They want the price to go up. Um, if you get into the weeds, you notice that in the cuts, Russia is probably going to produce more and OPEC is going to produce less. So in this deal that they struck, Tony, we and the world is helping Russia get more money. That drives me insane that that's happening. But that's the geopolitical, Tony. The other part of the equation is President Biden says one thing, and I think he believes what he says, but he's not in charge of his own administration. The Department of Energy, they're delaying permits on liquefied natural gas. The Nord Stream pipeline down. Europe needs natural gas, and our own Department of Energy is delaying approval of permits to send them natural gas. His Department of Interior canceled sales and leases on existing federal lands. His National Environmental Protection Act has delayed oil permits for over two years. Tony, I could go on and on about the things that the people that worked for him have done. There's where the problem is. Who's running this administration? 
Well, let's argue that President Biden is running this administration. It's President Biden and his team, and and, and this is uh, what they believe. The, the question is, what does the uh, slowing down of this permitting do for us? If I go to oilprice.com, one of the stories that they had up was that Germany needs to slash natural gas consumption to avoid a, a, a winter emergency. Is this now the conversation that the answer is produce less and then tell people they have to do with less because it fits an ideological desire, even though people might freeze to death? Tony, what world are we living in when the solution is to just consume less? You know what, Tony? We can't produce enough food. Can everyone just starve? That'll solve the problem. What logic is it that that is the solution? The solution should be higher standard of living, higher quality of life better environment, better transportation, more goods and services. The solution shouldn't be tighten your belt. This sounds like we're in the Middle Ages when the the princes and the royalty live on high and the masses have to suffer. Yeah, this this is very Downton Abbey. You're either, uh, you know, upstairs or downstairs. That that certainly seems to be it. But let's get back to talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis. Talk about U.S. policy and talk about how we... Um, engage more energy. So there's two uh, conversations going on here and maybe uh, quite a few more. We rely on on this oil uh, from from OPEC, but we have our own ability, specifically in that natural gas uh, world here in the United States. We also have shale. I I got an email that was asking uh, uh, about this, and this goes to the idea of refineries, because there's a question of whether or not the refineries we have are able to actually refine the oil that comes uh, from shale, the energy that comes from shale, versus what we get in a, in a more standardized kind of way. Does the United States have the infrastructure to engage what I refer to as energy security, or is that an investment that the oil companies are willing to make, but this administration says no to? The answer is no, Tony, we don't have it. The last what we call major downstream refinery was built in Garyville, Louisiana in 1977. 1977, we've had some smaller refineries that do more niche things, but they're basically refurbished previous refineries. There are exceptions or loopholes in the refinery law, but we haven't built a major, major refinery since 1977, Tony. And that refinery, thank God for the oil companies, Tony, that refinery produced 200 million barrels, of refining capacity, it's now at 585 million. The one built the year before was built to produce 15 million. Now they're doing 290 million. Our oil industry has been very efficient with their handcuffs on. I'm amazed at how much oil we can refine. But Tony, the refining capacity in this country is it's sad. Do we, we know if there's a, a difference between what we're able to get here, for example, from shale, and will these refine can these refineries uh, provide it? And since this refinery issue has happened in both types of administrations, Republican and Democrat in administrations, is there going to be a push on the economic side from the economists, from the oil companies, from others, to, from from business in general, to say, hey, we need the refining refinery capacity, and does that even solve? the problem of the fact that we don't have enough oil coming out of those OPEC nations. Well, Tony, you asked a lot of questions there, and I think the problem is not going to be solved because the problem is the swamp. Right now, there is a the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has delayed natural gas permitting under the gauze of what's called public need. 
They say there is no public need. They have these these bureaucrats in the swamp have decided that there is no public need for more natural gas, Tony. And they've delayed refinery production and they've delayed exploration. Two things that we need. It's very clear that without the refineries, our pro. Dear Lord, exactly how tenuous is our situation? Uh, you know, when, when, when Dr. Will talks about the, these, these refineries and how they're, they've really been able to ramp up capacity, that also says one thing goes wrong and you have no capacity. You need redundancy. You need backup. My, my father is always big on this subject. And, and uh, there's an extent to which he's right and an extent to which he, he, he's wrong. This is about sales and the idea of hunting elephants. You want big, big, big deals. I don't argue that you don't. My father has never really searched for the big deals. He's always been very, very content with hitting doubles. Just boom, boom, boom. And his theory has always been, if you lose a double, it doesn't destroy you. You lose an elephant. Man, you got a serious problem if you're really relying on that. When you get the elephant, that's the fun stuff. But you got to expect it to go away. You got to expect the big deal to disappear. That's why you need all those doubles. You need the singles. Sometimes you get a triple. You're like, woohoo! But you keep hitting. And so it, it's that I just don't believe that you have to avoid hunting the elephant. You, you, there, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you don't just wait for it to come uh, to you. You, you want to be somebody who's proactive. That's where our disagreement has always, always, always been. And it's not that the man is, is risk averse. Dear, oh, dear God, I should tell stories one, one, one of these days. Not risk averse. But this idea of doubles also is to the very idea of redundancy. When people talk about supply chain and we talk about bringing things back to the United States, I've heard people say, well, you can't bring it all back to the United States. What if something happens in the U.S. you're not able to produce? That is a smart answer, by the way. It means that you should have some supply chain set up in India or somewhere else. And yes, I'm wicked upset with India for buying Russian oil. There's no doubt about this. But you need supply chain and it can't be in China. So you need a place that can actually produce the thing. You're not able to get a certain product. They are. You're not able, they're not able to manufacture. You can. That's where the world comes into play. And I think uh, those relationships can be extremely helpful. The redundancy, the backup matters. The United States has no backup plan for a refinery issue. None. That's frightening. That is foolhardy. That's ignorant. That's poor planning. You don't run a business like this. You can't run a country like this. So yes to exploration. I don't disagree with with Dr. Will. That was Dr. Matt Will we were talking to, by the way. Uh, Economist, University of Indianapolis. Uh, Appreciate him quite a bit. You have to be able to have the refinery. Now you could say to me, Tony, if these refineries are producing at above their original capacity, maybe we don't need it for uh, production. Right until one goes down. And how about we take a refinery and we engage more refining capability from what? Our own energy opportunities. We create our energy security. This is where the value is, baby. It is about doing it all. And right now, we ain't doing it all. We're not. We need to. 
and we are not. And this is where the Biden administration fails. This is where the progressive left fails in their philosophy. Fails. You have to be honest and clear. You can have you can want green from now until the end of time. And I don't I don't have any problem with electric vehicles or hydrogen vehicles. Me personally, I want nuclear power. I want these things. I have no issue with these things. But you know, when we talk about electric vehicles, you need oil. You need gas. Florida and and, and the uh and, and the hurricane proves it. These issues that we're talking about prove it. Look, OPEC makes one decision and everybody freaks out. Why aren't they saying, well, we've got electric cars, we don't care? Because that can't just be the answer. That power has to come from somewhere and it comes from oil. Time to grow up. We need it all. We need the energy and then we need the way to refine it. We need better policy. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. This might be the very best story of the day. The very best story of the day. This is inventive. And all those people who believe in gun buybacks, they're going to be having to change how they do things. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything. TonyKatz.com. TonyKatz.locals.com. In New York, they were doing one of these gun buyback things. And which is weird because the government can't buy back something it didn't sell you. But don't let that, you know, these are people who think that you can refer to a person as they. Anyway, they have one of these gun buybacks. And this guy shows up and is like, hey, uh, you, you, you buy in lower receivers. You got lowers, you got uppers, you can make your own firearm, which is totally legal, by the way. And they're like, yes, 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 yes. He's like, all right. I got all these. I have 110 lower receivers. So uh, so what do you want to give me? The officials gave him $21,000 in $500 gift cards. However, the story is that this guy printed the lower receivers. He bought a $200 3D printer, printed off 200 lower receivers and got $21,000 for them. That's amazing. Amazing. And and this this guy is like it shows that your policies don't work and that you've created perverse demand. You cause people to show up to these events and it doesn't actually reduce crime because this guy was like, "Hey, let me show you how ridiculous you are." And he just printed them out. That's that is incredible. No, gun buy program buyback programs are silly, are valueless propositions. They really and truly are. Very interesting. I wonder I wonder who else is going to get taken in by this, or I wonder what rules they're going to create to try and, and get people to stop doing this. I don't know. I'm going to watch. Me, I'm not even showing up. I'm not showing up. I, I own my firearms. I'm good with them. Keep it here. This is Tony Katz today. I don't think you have to be an expert in the world of football to note that the Indianapolis Colts have a problem. I think you could have watched yesterday's game, the Colts losing to the Titans, 24-17. They are third in the AFC South with a record of 1-2-1. and And you could also argue that they're lucky to have the one against the Kansas City Chiefs. They could easily be the Houston Texans at 0-3-1. But the record is what the record is. The question is, what's wrong with this team? 
flashes of really being able to move an offense, but no flash of a running game. An offensive line that is paid this high that does that little. And a defense that didn't seem to come up with the stops when it was necessary, when they could. Tony Katz, good to be with you. JMV joins us right now from 93.5-1075. The fan right here in Indianapolis, Indiana, 3 to 6 p.m. over there. On uh, the, the, the fan, you know, I texted you yesterday. I'm like, uh, who, who gets fired? And this is still my question. Are we at a place with the Colts at one, two, and one, two division losses uh, uh, to, Jag- to the Jaguars and to Tennessee, the tie with the Texans? Um, is anybody getting fired this week in a short week as they head off to Denver to play the Broncos on Thursday? Well, Tony, certainly not in a short week. Nobody's going to get fired. But you have seen a list of scapegoats so far. You go back to Blankenship after week number one, missing that field goal. He was a scapegoat. He's out. You know, obviously McLaughlin comes in. He missed yesterday, too. Uh, You have seen Danny Pinter as the scapegoat at right guard yesterday. He was out. Will Fries came in on the offensive line. I would still be incredibly surprised, Tony, if Jim Irsay makes – a head coaching change because that's all we're talking about here. Obviously, we'll get to Ballard in a second uh, because his fingerprints are all over this mess right now, too, in a major way. But let's face it. You look at Frank Reich, Tony. Frank Reich is not the coach that you're looking for with this group or this group is not a great group for this coach. Either way, at some point if the season continues to go this direction, Frank is not going to be the head coach in 2023. I still find it hard to believe at some point because he's never done it that Jim Irsay would do it during the season. I don't know what the embarrassing point might be because it's all been pretty embarrassing in these losses and this tie so far. But I still would be surprised if Jim Irsay made a change, Tony, midseason. But let's just face it, it's going down this hill where Frank Reich will not be the coach here next season if this continues. And they give you know the fans, the media that covers it, really no reason to suggest otherwise at this point. Now, you, you talk about, you know, at this point, it, yeah. you, are, you, are you making the argument that it, the playoffs have to happen to survive, or is it deep into the playoffs that, that have to survive? And how do you get there when you see an offensive line that, uh, you know, you talk about the fact the highest paid uh, offensive line in the NFL, but the, 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 the sacks, the, the, the pressing, and then you, you lead to the, to the fumbles from, from Matt Ryan, um, how, how do you how do you come to accept this as something that can happen all year long, even if they do eke out some wins? Well, let me let me give you a, a two layered answer to what you just asked right there. If things get massively more embarrassing, then again, maybe that will set the stage a path where Jim Irsay hasn't gone down before. I'm talking about what we have seen so far and the disappointment in the loss column and tie. Um, not to mention the fact that we're talking about a team and an owner in the offseason that all he did was talk about how Carson Wentz was the issue, Carson Wentz is gone, and how this team has to beat Tennessee. He, to me, and I think I told you this on Friday, to me he's been smitten with Tennessee and how they win because the Colts were so built to win in the fashion in which Tennessee is supposed to win with toughness with running what they like to call grit, playing some defense, having a tough offensive line, and it's all to this point blown up in their face. And this is what, to me, stands the reason why there is no way in the world that Frank is going to be back next year when it goes down this path. But maybe 
gets the gate at some point this year because of the embarrassment. Tony, you go back to last week, and once again, Jim Mercer via Twitter was outspoken about how much value, how premium of a game this is to finally beat Tennessee. And, Tony, they give their owner the worst first half that we have seen since, I don't know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago in Houston, two weeks ago in Jacksonville. That, to me, means either the coach has lost the locker room or the locker room's not with the coach or these guys just simply don't get it. But that is embarrassing to the owner. And if you can't come out there and look better than that in the first half as they didn't yesterday, changes besides the right guard, changes besides the place kicker, which, by the way, is still not fixed, need to be made. I just don't know it's layered if he'll do it this year unless there's this massive embarrassment that takes place. But, again, with this team, Tony, that's not out of the realm of possibility, as we've seen. Talking to JMV from 93.5-1075, the fan, Matt Ryan – was 27 of 37 for 356 yards, two touchdowns and an interception. Uh, there were, I believe, the, the, the fumble as well. He can throw 27 for 37, 356. You would consider a good day. That happens because Jonathan Taylor had 20 carries for 42 yards, which again goes back to either the offensive line or a problem with Jonathan Taylor. Um, talk to me about whether or not Ryan is competent uh, as a quarterback, and what in the world is going on with our running game? No, I think you could throw it at times. I mean, he made these guys work for it yesterday, Tony. As you saw, they were throwing behind and in front and over the head, and and these guys are having to work for it. Clearly, he's found a a little bit of an opening there with the tight ends, whether you're talking about the rookie Jelani Woods or Mo Ali Cox had a nice afternoon yesterday. Seems like he's getting a little bit going with Alec Pierce. But the guy has fumbled ten stinking times, Tony, Ten times in four games. I mean, I believe that's more than a couple of stinking teams here. Ten times, even you, I mean, it'll be incredibly masculine, I'm sure, but even with your smallish, incredibly, I'm sure, masculine hands would hold on to it longer than that. I mean, smallish? Terrible. Smallish yet masculine, right? I'm not that's sure. I'm not sure how to take yeah, that, but no, keep no, going. No, he can throw it, Tony. He, he can throw it when he gets time, but that's where it all starts. It all starts with the offensive line. It's been awful. And that's where it goes back to Chris Ballard, as I alluded to earlier. The foundational blocks of what has been built here, they have failed. On the offensive line, on the defensive line, all the values that you have and how you constructed a team against what I think should be constructed in this era of the NFL, not putting value on the wide receivers, putting value on a $20 million per left guard or the defensive line going with a 37-year-old quarterback He has gone opposite of what it normally takes to win in the modern era of the NFL. Those are foundational building blocks, and to this point, they have absolutely failed. And if that offensive line does that, it doesn't matter anything else. The whole system's going to fail. If you're uh, advising Coach Reich, one, one change, what is it? What is the one change that can at least get this team started because they have certainly uh, took to the second half to really start uh, showing some movement, so showing some activity. What is the one change that, that you make? I don't think he has it in his bag right now. Uh, that sounds bad. I don't think he has it in his bag. A lot of people would say, hey, just how about the change in demeanor, the change in personality, you know, screaming and yelling, you know, doing something Mike Vrabel on the other sideline yesterday might do. Yeah, that's not him. Nobody's going to take to that. 
you know, if they don't take to, you know, the necessity of winning a game of that magnitude yesterday, they're not going to take to somebody all of a sudden switching their personality, you know, in midstream like this because you know that your job is on the line. And, you know, I talk about not having it in their bag. They don't have it in their bag because it starts with the offensive line. This is supposed to be a running team. Jonathan Taylor can't run. He can't get a crease. He can't get any space whatsoever. You go back to last week. Remember on that fourth down call where he tried to jump the pile around yep. midfield to get that first down? You know why he did that? Is because he knew that there was going to be no space going off the $20 million left guard to be had. So he thought he was going to outsmart people and go midair. And that didn't work out either. It starts with this offensive line. And really, both sides of this line, when they don't get it done to the magnitude in which they have not so far this team, the way it's constructed, is sure to fail, and that's on the shoulders of Chris Ballard, the general manager. I think there's a lot on the shoulders of Chris Ballard, the general manager. That's JMV, 93.5, The fan, catch him from 3 to 6 p.m. That's what you do, and then you can listen to what he has to say because he's got much, much, much more on this subject. Uh, the Colts win, the Colts lose, I I don't know. I don't think I'm good enough yet to be able to start making those kinds of predictions. I, I told you, I, I warned you, I said, I'm sick and tired of the sports guys getting involved in in, in, in my stuff, <laughs> getting involved in in the in the political stuff. I'm I'm gonna start learning. I'm gonna I'm gonna start knowing. Uh, and and what I, I've been following on on this conversation is is the idea that there's there's the picking of the team and then there's the coaching of the team these things are clearly different and there are reasons why you could have a good coach with a bad team and it's not necessarily his fault and so what you're seeing with this Ballard Wright conversation is 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 it the wrong people or is it the wrong person to put those people together this goes back to the Bill Parcells line the former New York Giants coach who then uh, moved around a, a, a little bit if you want me to cook the meal, the least you could do is let me buy a few of the ingredients. That was his line. And his point was, you want me to create this team, you know, get this team to a Super Bowl, uh, let me pick some of the players for this team. The problem I have with, with putting it all on Ballard is that the draft came and went. You know what people said? Not bad. The players seem to all, on paper, have it. They're good. They're valuable. They're actually excellent in many positions. But as a team, it ain't working. And so is that all on Coach Reich? Or does Coach Reich need certain ingredients that Ballard has not provided him? Ingredients who, let's say, want to go along with Reich's style and attitude. Is this a team that needs a, a coach that yells at you? And if if Ballard isn't providing the people who need a little more of of Reich's, you know, easygoing, if if you will, facade, well then then it can't work. So there's a, a there's the part where I find myself as an observer a bit a bit lost in in the in the conversation. I'm trying to bring myself into to get an understanding of, okay, how how do the, the guys tick? How does the coach tick? How does the general manager tick? How does it all come come together? How how does that all come together in a, in a way that makes sense so I can start saying, okay, I can pinpoint this, I can pinpoint that, I can see the issues, et cetera, et cetera.
Right now, all I can say is that this team does not play up to its potential. And to lose to, to, if they lose to the Broncos, well, firings have to happen so the team knows that the team is serious. And if you see Matt Ryan sacked four times and, and, and the pressures, if you see him fumble again because of that pressure, offensive line coach has got to get fired. I don't think it'll be Reich, and I don't think it'll be Ballard. Offensive line coach gets sacrificed. And it won't even be a sacrifice because it will be real. It will be important, or, or I should say, it, it, well, it'll be important that they show, right, that, that they're serious about this, but it'll be important to the idea uh, that they need someone who can, who can do better. They need someone who can do better. And Strasser, that's the offensive line coach. Chris, is it Chris Strasser who would be on the line? Because he's, he's in his fourth year. But something's not working. Something's something's not working. So you're you're gonna you're gonna have to do something about that. Gonna have to do something. I think that's where they would they would start. We'll find out. We'll see how they do against the Broncos. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. So of all the audio clips today that I've gone through. Oh, man, I've got... You understand, I go through more than I share on the show. There's just no way to share it all. There'd be nothing to talk about. It'd just be nothing but insanity. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Uh, this this one was, uh, I, I think, the clip of the day. Check out this gem, which is, by the way, I, I, I've been working on some new segments. I'm working on changing the, 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 the show as, as, I, as I off do. I, I, I don't know if I get... It's not bored. It's not that. It's that I get... Like, I, I, complacency, I think, is a real issue. I think complacency is a real a real problem. So I've been working on something, uh, and uh, some, some of this maddening audio, and uh, I, I check out this gem, because this is a gem. This is a peach. This is uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci on with Stephen Colbert, because, you know, it's important that doctors go on late-night uh, talk shows that nobody watches in order to entertain America. That That's how it works. He's like the Patch Adams of our time. And uh, they are, for whatever reason, they left the Ed Sullivan Theater and they're walking around uh, uh, Midtown. They walk into a uh, convenience store. I don't know. They're, they're going to do something COVID related. And all of a sudden, Steve Colbert sees the candy aisle and is like, ooh. Oh, spooky season is coming up. What scares you the most? A thousand kids coming to my door breathing on me. <laughs> right. You know, he's serious, right? You know he's serious that the thing that scares him is a thousand kids coming to his door breathing on him. First, a thousand kids ain't coming to your door. Secondly, they're six feet away. They're wearing masks already. What are you you worried about? They're wearing them. The constant fear. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want anybody breathing on me. Sometimes my own kids, I'm like, could you just take a step back? What are you... What are you what are you so close for? What is happening here? A hug is a hug, but the breathing and and what did you eat today? What in the world is going on in there? Did do you need to see a doctor? I will take you to a doctor right now. I will take you so help me. Good lord. This is not okay. That's from your mother's side. I tell you right there. The man lives, Fauci lives in 24/7 fear and the spreading of fear. 
But he's doing this show, walking into the CVS, not wearing a mask. No mask. Him and Colbert, maskless, closer than six feet. Yet somehow he's going to tell you how to live. The important part is that science, A, is real. Right? Uh, uh, science is, is definitely real. The science does change, and you need to be able to work with changes. But even with science being real, even with science changing, when it comes to a virus, we don't shut down society. This is what we've learned. That's what we've learned. It isn't what Fauci's learned. If we've learned anything from COVID, what we have learned is do not let doctors be in charge of public policy. We elect people for a reason. And these doctors, whether they be local or state or federal, like like Fauci, man, they don't care if they shut you down, lock you down, keep you in a cage. They're cool. We, we save lives. No lives were saved. I'm saying it. No lives were saved. Lives were indeed damaged. Souls were damaged. Kids were damaged. I mean, those are just irrefutable facts. Find everything at TonyCats.Locals.com. TonyCats.Locals.com. And you'll, you'll, you'll see it all. It's good stuff. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.